0: Welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness podcast series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness webcast series held on December 18, 2019, Tax Readiness Q4 Financial Reporting Considerations. The panelists for the webcast were Damien Boudreau, a partner in PwC's U.S. Tax Accounting Services, Jennifer Spang, PwC's National Tax Accounting Leader, And Ryan Weldon, a director in PwC's National Professional Services Group. This excerpt consists of a discussion of the valuation allowances and uncertain tax provisions. Have a listen. So Ryan, why don't I start with
1: you to walk us through valuation
2: allowances. Okay. Thanks, Jen. So as a reminder, a company would record a valuation allowance if it determines that some or all of its deferred tax assets are not realizable. And the standard provides us with four sources of taxable income that we can think about when we're making this determination. But companies have to consider all available information, both positive and negative evidence. And you also have to weight that evidence based on the extent to which you would say it is objectively verifiable. So something like uh, taxable income from a carryback period that has already happened is going to be more objectively verifiable than a future forecast a taxable income which is inherently subjective. Um, so as you might imagine as you're going through this, there's a lot of complexity, um, a lot of judgment. So one thing that we see very commonly is the three-year cumulative income or loss analysis. And it's important to keep in mind that that's only a single data point. That's a single piece of information. We're thinking about all available evidence, positive and negative, quantitative and qualitative. So just because you have a cumulative loss doesn't necessarily mean that you need a valuation allowance. And the opposite is also true. Just because you have cumulative income doesn't automatically mean that you won't need a valuation allowance. And one more point as I think about valuation and allowances post-reform um, is it's important to think about taxable income limitations and the interplay that you might see between different attributes. So if I think about net operating losses, before tax reform, Um, These had finite lives a 20 year carry forward period, uh, but you weren't limited based on taxable income in a year and post reform your uh, Losses can carry forward indefinitely, but you're subject to that 80% limitation. And then if you think about a 163 J interest disallowance carry forward and a net operating loss the tax law would tell you that you have to include the 163J carry forward in your calculation before your net operating losses. So the interplay there can impact the amount of valuation allowance that you need.
1: Well, and Ryan, you know, staying with the interest limitation point, because I think that that really is one that um, while the, the limitation has always existed, it's so much more applicable to so many more taxpayers, right? So, um, as you think about it, it's a question that we've been seeing a lot more around how to think about specifically interest limitation in evaluation allowance assessment. So maybe you could dive a little deeper on that one particular point.
2: Yeah. So first of all, I mentioned before four sources of taxable income from the standard. So for these interest limitation carry forwards, you only have two of those. Um, that's reversing taxable temporary differences, so deferred tax liabilities, and also a future forecast of taxable income that excludes those. Um, the second point I would make is the Section 163 J. carry fords should not be assessed for realizability in isolation. You're doing this assessment for your aggregate deferred tax assets, and that's because this interest is just one component of your income. It feeds into the same taxable income calculation as your net operating losses and your other deductible temporary differences. So. What I mean by that is it wouldn't be appropriate if you have reversing taxable temporary differences to just ignore those and record evaluation allowance on your entire 163J carry forward just because you think that you're going to be building it in the near future rather than using some of the carry forward that you've created in the past. And we've heard a lot about this this year. In fact, um, shortly the AICPA will be issuing a technical question and answer, a TQA, that addresses this topic. It's not going to include a numerical example, um, but it will provide some insight on how companies should be thinking about these two sources of income um, and applying this guidance. So if I start with the first source of taxable income, the most objectively verifiable here, the reversing temporary differences, um, a couple things I want to point out. So first is scheduling. I think scheduling is something that we're going to see more of um, here in this post-reform world. because of those taxable income limitations and that interplay that I mentioned before and how all of that can impact the amount of valuation allowance that you record. The second is the carry forward period. So these 163j carry forwards are indefinite lived. So if you have taxable temporary differences that also have an indefinite live, naked credits, you wanna make sure you're taking those into consideration as well. But So once you think about this source, um, let's say that the taxable temporary differences alone are sufficient that you're allowed to realize all of your deferred tax assets, including 163J. The standard tells you that you can stop there if one source is enough. Where it gets tricky is if that one source on its own is not enough. Then the standard tells you that you have to keep looking for other sources, and here we only have future taxable income. But let's say that a company does have the ability to forecast future taxable income at that objectively verifiable threshold and maybe that's just because they now have taxable income from this interest disallowance. Um, You at least have to think about what that means for you. And so the key word we're gonna say here is you wanna think about whether that provides you with an incremental benefit. Okay, so I've already gone through my first source and I have a certain amount of my assets that are realizable. That's going to be my floor. So then when I bring in the second source and I'm looking at these two together, Let's say that that tells me I can uh, realize an amount higher than that floor. Then I have an incremental benefit. I'm gonna take that into account. But let's say that when I look at those two together, I actually come up with an amount that's less than my floor because of the interplay of the taxable income limitations, um, the tax law ordering, uh, maybe different assumptions. What we would say there is that you don't have an incremental benefit, and so what you do at that point is you set that second source aside, but you still have to think about that first source. So then you're left with the floor, and you would be recording your valuation allowance based on that.
1: And I think you you mentioned scheduling, and, you know, scheduling was actually a criticism of FAS 109 and then ultimately codified as 740. Scheduling was actually a criticism of the predecessor, right? And the standard as it exists today basically just says you have to schedule if it's necessary. And I think in history we really haven't had to do, it except in more limited cases, we haven't right. really had to do extensive scheduling. But it seems like this is the conversation each week is how important this is and just you know how much more prevalent. So I think that's a really important point. All right, so Demian, let's move to you and outside basis and uh, indefinite reinvestment assertions, and uh, kind of do the same thing. Let's do some level setting and and Absolutely. see how that applies this year as we head into year end.
3: Absolutely. So thinking through outside basis differences, I think it's it's good to level set on what is an outside basis difference, right? So uh, for for a for a subsidiary, right, you have kind of two things to think about: your inside basis, right, your Your basis and the underlying assets and liabilities but also your outside basis and the outside basis uh, is essentially the the basis that a parent or an investor would have in a subsidiary stock let's say and so you know your tax basis and the shares of that investment and so your outside basis difference really represents that difference between your tax investment or your tax basis and ultimately the book carrying value of that investment and I think it's important, important when we think about this and we talk about parent companies, right? We're not just talking about the global parent of a, of a financial statement group, but at every point in your org chart where you have an entity and you have a subsidiary below it and that is a parent of that subsidiary, you have to consider an outside basis difference. So when you look at your org chart, you have to look at an outside basis difference really at every level. And so I think that's important not just to make that you know, assumption that's at the top level. Um, what to think about in an outside basis difference or a temporary difference that results. Uh, really important to think about the legal form of the entity, right? So do you have a partnership, a branch, or a corporate structure? So that obviously factors in. Whether that entity is foreign or domestic is obviously important. And then what are, what are the investor or the, the parent's intent with the investment, right? Do you intend to hold it and collect dividends, sell it, or otherwise? So I think those are obviously important factors into... You know, determining an outside basis difference and and the tax impacts. You know, as far as what would drive that difference over time, we think of some of the main components, the first one being unremitted earnings, right? Over time, your book basis, let's say, will increase as you generate income in that subsidiary. And so your book investment will increase. Uh, But from a tax perspective, unless that tax, that entity is within, say, a consolidated filing group or the parent company of that investment. Uh, It would you know be subject to taxation currently on the subsidiary's earnings often that tax basis may stay constant And so over time you will develop a a, a book over tax basis difference Mm -hmm. That upon reversal could be taxable in the form of dividends or liquidation of the entity or otherwise Um, other basis differences could result or other impacts to basis could result from uh, other comprehensive income or changes in currency through you know, currency translation adjustments. Uh, you know, so, so when you think about those, you know, those elements along with any sort of you know, business combinations or otherwise, you know, you could have multiple in, inputs to that basis difference. But ultimately, I think the important piece is you only have one basis difference, right? You don't have multiple. So you have a book basis and a tax basis, and you have one basis difference to, an ally, to analyze. Uh, I think from a you know the it's important to note that that the that the presumption is that you know We'll going back to unremitted earnings that these unremitted earnings would ultimately be paid back to the parent or distributed back to the parent Unless some sort of indefinite reinvestment assertion could apply particularly with respect to foreign investments uh, an investment in a foreign corporation or an investment in a foreign corporate joint venture that's a simply, essentially permanent in duration and So that's you know coming back to our slide here Indefinite reinvestment assertion or what we might have referred to as APB 23, right? So so in that particular fact pattern where you might otherwise have to record a deferred tax liability uh, If you're able to make this exception or make this assertion uh, You can potentially avoid that deferred tax liability To do that you know, management does have to have the ability and intent to prevent that basis difference from reversing with an income tax effect uh, and so it's important to understand management's plan to do that, right? So the, the mere fact that a, that a company has not made distributions out of a lower-tier subsidiary per se does not in, it, you know, in itself mean that a company can make that assertion, right? They have to have to show definite plans to reinvest those underlying earnings or otherwise to make such an assertion. And you know, things that could happen in the future, for example, a, a business combination where you need money to make an acquisition or a disposition of a subsidiary or other part of your business where cash flow needs have changed can impact that analysis on a go-forward basis. Uh, I think the final point maybe to make here is that, you know, from a tax reform perspective with the toll charge as part of tax reform, a lot of the unremitted earnings of the the subsidiaries have been subject to U.S. federal taxation. Uh, But they may not have been subject to other types of taxation, so for example, the withholding taxes that may apply to a distribution up from a foreign entity or state income taxes or even maybe foreign currency impacts uh, that could have a tax effect as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's important. I think everybody expected um, significant changes to outside basis assertions. And I, I think in general that did happen, but it wasn't a complete all or nothing. I think in a lot of cases people are still in a partial assertion. So all of those comments about what still makes it up You have to understand that and you know particularly when you're thinking about currency that can drive some volatility so it's important to have that. Mm -hmm. Maybe one other thing I'd just add is everything you just talked about when we talk about APB 23 and the assertion is on foreign subsidiaries. Um, While those rules don't apply equally to a domestic subsidiary there is another piece of gap that basically says that if you have um, the intent so you have to sorry if you have the ability under the law to cause that to reverse in a tax-free manner, and you have the intent to access that opportunity, you also would not record the liability. So while it's not ABB 23, and it is a slightly different analysis, there's a similar result to that. Absolutely so why don't we stay with you for number three and expiring provisions are they in are they out are they coming um, and if they don't what does that mean to right. us it ties closely obviously to outside basis but I know this is one that um, you know we've been watching very closely so
3: absolutely and certainly what's so your that... crystal ball
1: say? <laughs>
3: <laughs> no idea but I would say that it'd be clearly we've seen activity this week right in the past day or so so uh, reminder uh, CFC look-through rules, you know, under Internal Revenue Code 954C6, really uh, discussing or impacting payments between foreign affiliated uh, entities uh, where, you know, certain dividends or interest type payments uh, have, are, are exempt from subpart F income, if you will. And so without this, this, uh, this look-through exclusion, if you will, uh, those payments could be considered a subpart F income and as such could be currently taxable on the U.S. return. The, the the look-through rules are set to expire as of the end of the year. And it, right now we don't know if we're going to get an extension on that, right? So we've certainly seen some activity in the past few days. We'll continue to monitor that through the remainder of the year. But ultimately sitting here today, we don't have an extension. And so I think it's important for companies to understand how this could impact current taxes, deferred taxes, indefinite reinvestment assertion, right? so. In our prior webcast, we've certainly discussed the subpart F accounting model, uh, both the branch full inclusion model as well as the non-full inclusion model. But there's a, there's a point in there of when you're looking at your outside basis differences and say, for example, you have multiple subsidiaries, multiple foreign subsidiaries, to the extent you were going to distribute dividends up the, you know, up the chain, where those entities may or when those dividends may have not been subject to subpart F income, perhaps they would without look-through. And so when you think about the impact to an outside basis difference or your ability to assert, you know, an indefinite reinvestment, you really need to consider, well, how would that change if I didn't have look-through? Right. right? And so it's important for us to monitor this through the end of the year and, and see what we have because if we don't get extended by December 31st, it could be impactful to company's provisions.
2: This
1: last minute, we could probably say this a few times yes. today, they're very exciting, those <laughs> oh, yes. December 31st events. <laughs> Why don't I go to you? It would be great to just get an update. We've seen a lot of activity from the OECD mm-hmm. um, this year and, frankly, particularly this fall. Right. Um, so maybe you could give an update on what we're looking at there and when we might see something.
3: Sure, absolutely. So uh, as a refresh, we talked a bit about this in our Q2 webcast. OECD is undergoing a project Uh, Where they're looking at you know the impacts of the digitalization and globalization of the world You know the global economy how that impacts taxation for global jurisdictions and so two main Components to that that they've that they've designated pillar one Which addresses really the the allocation or challenges the allocation of global profits amongst jurisdictions and then the pillar two which is really the global base erosion component to their analysis which among other things, includes a potential for a global alternative minimum tax. And so those are, the two, those are the two components they're looking at. And they've released documents throughout the year. But during the fourth quarter, they released a, some additional documents, some consultation documents They had a number of questions uh, that they, they seek comment letters on. And so at this point, comment letters have been received. There have been public forums for, for these uh, documents. And I, I think the, the story right now is, as of year end, we don't have a final document or a framework. We don't have a, a law change, if you will. But we're seeing a lot of activity, and they have a very short, they have a very fast timeline, right? We expect a lot of activity to occur early 2020, in 2020. And so I think this is one of those areas where we're seeing a lot of activity now. We need to continue to follow that very closely because this, this, this is going to happen fast.
1: Yeah, it seems like we'll see a lot of activity, and it seems like we'll be talking about that a lot next year, I think. Yes, yes. <laughs> Great. All right, so let's move on to number four. And when we think about some of the, you know, core income tax accounting, more judgmental areas, valuation allowance, outside basis, let's go back to you, Ryan, on uncertain tax positions, which uh, gets a lot of attention. Yeah,
2: (laughs) okay, so, for uncertain tax positions, we have this two step model that we apply. The first step being recognition, and the second step is measurement. Um, so, first, a company has to think about um, whether or not their tax position is sustainable at a more likely than not level based on the tax based on the technical merits under the law. Um, So you have to do that first in order to recognize um, any tax benefit from this in your financial statements. So once you've met that recognition threshold, you then move on to the second step, which is measurement. And here we have a cumulative probability model. So when you're thinking about the different potential outcomes, uh, once you get to that cumulative probability above 50%, um, that's what you use to measure the position that you end up recording. so importantly here this is an ongoing assessment you don't think about this on day one when you first take the position and then forget about it from that point forward Um, you're actually required in each reporting period to consider any new information as new information that's not a reassessment of some information that has existed all along or in prior periods and so this is coming up especially now where we're talking a lot about tax law changes and regulations in fact We saw some new regulations come out earlier this month. Um, So just a reminder that final and temporary regulations carry the weight of the law, and so we would certainly account for these in the period um, when they come out. So if those have an impact on your uncertain tax position, recording that through continuing operations in the period that that these regs are issued. Um, For proposed regulations, while these don't carry the weight of the law, they do at least provide us with an indication of how Treasury is thinking about this. Um, And so these also should be considered in the period when the guidance is released. And so here, companies need to think about whether they plan to follow these proposed regulations, assuming they have the ability to do so based on the language, um, and then go ahead and account for those today. And what's important on the proposed regulations is once you think about those in the period that the guidance is issued, we wouldn't expect to see any subsequent changes to those uncertain tax positions until we have new guidance in the form of a final regulation. Um, Otherwise, you would just be reassessing some information that's existed in prior periods. Mm -hmm. That's helpful.
1: All right, great. And Ryan, um, we've had a fair bit of standard setting activity in the income tax accounting area this year, which doesn't always happen. Um, But on the disclosure project, could you, I know we'll talk about simplification shortly, but um,
2: disclosure, could you give an update on on where that sits? Yeah. So the last thing that we saw was the exposure draft earlier this year. Um, So at this point, the next step is for FASB to reconvene and discuss the comments that they received on that exposure draft. Um, So we were originally hoping that that would take place earlier this fall, um, but here we are at the end of December, and it has not, so we will continue to monitor this for activity into 2020. Um, And the key takeaway here is that we don't have a final standard update on disclosures. So for 2019, disclosures are still business as usual, no changes. And we'll pick back up with you in a little bit around disclosures,
1: I think that's an important topic as we sit here in the fourth quarter for many companies. So Damien, um, IP migrations. So as we think about all of the changes, not just from the U.S., but outside the U.S. in particular as well, um, you've seen a lot of companies reassessing treasury, cash, um, where the business you know, IP is. And in the midst of that, you've seen some movements around that. And so as we think about these IP migrations, what do we need to be thinking about from an income tax accounting perspective?
3: Oh, absolutely. So <clears throat> think about Think about going back to the basics on this one too, right? So we have a temporary difference that will result from a difference between our book carrying value in an asset or a liability and that corresponding tax basis in that asset or liability. And so when we think about what those deferred taxes represent on those temporary differences, you know, think about, you know, settling. What would happen if we settled those, those amounts at their book carrying value, right? So I think that's an important concept to ground ourselves in when we think about, okay, well, what does that mean on a migration of IP? And so from a, you know, f- when you think about the, the book perspective, right, that what are the book assets and the book liabilities, we're really looking at the U.S. gap there. Mm-hmm. But from a tax basis perspective, you know, you are looking towards, okay, what does the local law say? What do the local regulations say with respect to that basis? And so bringing that back to IP, it's important to think about, okay, well, I've got my book carrying value, what is my local law gonna say about that tax basis? And so, I think where some of the questions have come up, and this is on our slide, we reference uh, ASU 2016-16, right? So, it's, uh, an ASU, been out for a while now, but before ASU 2016-16, there was a prohibition on the recognition of current and deferred taxes on intra-entity asset transfers, right? So an intra-entity asset transfer would not have a current tax and it would be a prohibition on those deferred taxes. With the adoption of ASU 2016-16, uh, that prohibition is now gone with the exception of inventory, right? So that means that we do recognize the current and deferred tax impacts of an intra-entity asset transfer which would include intellectual property, right? So what that effectively means is that where we've got this transfer, we could be recognizing deferred taxes for the acquirer within a financial statement reporting group. So as a simple example, I have IP. that's, re- that's in a particular tax jurisdiction. It has no book basis. It has no tax basis. It's self-created IP. I subsequently sell that IP to a second entity in my structure into a different, let say country. My my book carrying value from a US GAAP perspective is still zero. But my tax basis has likely increased, let's say to the fair market value, as a result of the transaction. And so at that point, I have a tax basis greater than book basis, I have a temporary difference, I have a deferred tax asset I need to consider. You know, keeping in mind other deferred tax asset considerations such as realizability, valuation allowance type considerations. And so, you know, I think when you when you, when you're when you when companies are analyzing this they need to take a look and say okay well what does the local tax law say with respect to this basis because right. it's important to understand how to re- how we're going to recover that basis so what does the tax law say locally with respect to the amortization or otherwise of that basis uh, so that you can appropriately account for that deferred tax
1: the key thing there is what does the tax law say about that exactly. basis right so that in its first instance it's really a tax law question which you then apply the accounting standard to. So I think that's an
0: important point. Right. Great. Thank you for listening to this Tax Readiness Podcast. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the speakers. You can find their contact information in the description of this episode. Thank you.